Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. Sometimes our commander-in-chief, ideally a polder of the law, fails to inspire us. Take the 1970s. Well, I'm not a crook. Or the 90s. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. And now the 21st century. I'm an extremely stable genius. You're about to hear two attorneys make sense out of a legal system some say is a train wreck. Here are Royal Oaks and Connor Oaks. This is Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers and I'm Royal Oaks. Connor is on vacation, so he will be back soon. But for now, we're going to talk about three big issues in the news on the legal front. First of all, affirmative action postmortem. The uh, oral argument uh, questions from the justices on Halloween have given us a pretty clear indication that affirmative action is about to be history. Secondly, we're going to talk about why some people say it's time for a third party, that the laws we're making in this country really don't reflect a, a very centrist view. And finally, we're going to talk about the Tom Brady and Giselle divorce details inquiring minds want to know. But first, a couple of human interest items. Um, the woke have a brand new wacky idea to solve homelessness. Tax owners of vacant homes. And also, my World Series pet peeve. You don't take a guy out after six innings of no-hit ball. Of course, Dusty Baker knows baseball a little better than I do. But I still think it was a bad decision. So, what about homelessness? Now, I'm, I'm no genius. I, I don't know. Should we build more permanent homes? Should we build more shelters? I don't know. But I know one thing. A really bad idea is to tax the owners of properties that are temporarily vacant and uh, force them to pay in tax dollars money that can help solve the homelessness problem that's proven so insoluble over the last many decades. So here's what's happening. Uh, San Francisco, Berkeley, and Santa Cruz are contemplating a new approach, a, an empty home tax. They're going to charge you $2,500 to $6,000 per unit if it's vacant over six months. Really? The idea is to pressure people to rent out the homes like they're not already trying. And if they aren't trying, why is it any of your business? I mean, how really is this different from saying, hey, you know what? Uh, you've got lots of money in the bank. You're not currently using it. So give some of it to us to fight homelessness. Well, in a way, that makes a little more sense because an equally applied progressive tax is 
it's going to get money from everybody. It's not just going to get money from the owners of homes that are temporarily vacant. This new law that the communities are considering would force every residential owner that could be taxed to submit an annual declaration to the city regarding the vacancy status of their property. And then the city will develop a process to annually audit properties declared in use to verify vacancy status. In other words, whether the owner is telling the truth. So we need a bunch of good snitches in the neighborhood. Finally, I mean, there's this injustice of imposing a double taxation on owners of a second home or a condo who are already paying hefty property taxes and they're doing nothing wrong. So let's agree, it may not be super clear how to solve homelessness, but this is not the answer. All right, next human interest item, my World Series pet peeve. You don't take a guy out after six innings of no-hit ball. You know what happened in the World Series this year? A no-hitter. The second no-hitter in World Series history. Now, this one was a, a, a no-hitter with an asterisk because there were a couple of walks involved. Uh, whereas Don Larson's no-hitter for the New York Yankees in 1956 against the Dodgers was a perfect game. 27 batters up, 27 batters down. Nobody reached base. Okay. So congratulations to the Astros for winning this game in a quite a stylish fashion. Congratulations to the Astros for winning the World Series, even though the taint of having cheated in 2017 still dogs them. But, you know, that's not really what is on my mind. What's on my mind is that this pitcher pitched six innings of no-hit ball. He had a pitch count of 97. His high for the year was 115 pitches. And by the way, this was the last game of the year for him. It didn't matter how early he was taken out of the game. He wasn't going to be pitching again the rest of the World Series. So why did Dusty Baker, manager of the Astros, take him out? Oh, the bullpen was really fresh. Yeah, it was really fresh. What do you call a guy who's given up no hits to the Philadelphia Phillies, many of whose batters crushed the ball, he, he, was he wilting somehow? No, he wasn't wilting. So, you know, in the 118-year history of the World Series, you had exactly one no-hitter, now a second one. Isn't it appropriate to let the guy who's who's gone six innings, and then in the seventh inning, at the first sign of trouble, I mean, a walk, a hit, a home run, anything, fine, yank him out. But don't take away from him the chance to go down in the history books along with Don Larson as the no only no-hit pitcher in World Series history. All right, my pet peeve's out of the way. Let's get to the legal issues. Supreme Court is likely to end affirmative action. So Supreme Court spent five hours on Halloween, of all days, debating whether to end affirmative action in higher education. And of course, what we're dealing with is the, the ruling way back in 2003 in Grutter versus Bollinger, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor wrote the majority opinion upholding the narrow use of race in the admissions process in order to derive educational benefits from a diverse student body. So that is the principle that governs right now. But just take a look at the lineup. Justice Clarence Thomas, he has definitely questioned the educational benefits of diversity and it, it includes kind of a biographical detail from his own life. He was the only African-American in his class at a white boarding school in Georgia. And he said uh, to, uh, in, in a speech recently, 
you still haven't given me the educational benefits. And he reiterated this uh, when he was challenging the lawyers in the oral argument. He said, I didn't go to racially diverse schools, but there were educational benefits. I'd like you to tell me expressly, when a parent sends a kid to college, they don't necessarily send him there to have fun or feel good or anything like that. They send him to learn physics or chemistry or whatever they're studying. So tell me what the educational benefits of diversity are. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts got involved uh, in a big way in the oral argument as well. He pressed the lawyer defending Harvard's and, and University of North Carolina's affirmative action programs. He pressed this lawyer for a concession that race is occasionally a determining factor in who, who secures admission to Harvard. So this lawyer, uh, Waxman, said, well, a race for some highly qualified applicants can be the determinative, determinative factor, just like being an oboe player in a year in which the Harvard Orchestra needs an oboe player will be the tip. And the chief justice of the Supreme Court responded by saying, yeah, you know, we didn't fight a civil war about oboe players. We fought a civil war to eliminate racial discrimination, and that's why this is a matter of considerable concern. There was an involvement in the oral argument by Justice Kavanaugh as well. He challenged uh, the Solicitor General, who was uh, arguing in defense of uh, Harvard's approach. He said, how will we know when the time has come? Uh, how much diversity do we want or do we need? He, uh, he asked her to name a number or a percentage of minority students that schools could uh, attain through race-neutral means that would create meaningful enough diversity that racial preferences were no longer needed. And the answer came back, mm, we don't have a number. We can't reduce this to a precise number or percentage. So are we picking up kind of uh, a clue as to which direction the Supreme Court is moving? Uh, Brown versus Board of Education actually came up, you know, the, the most famous Supreme Court decision in, in history. Uh, and beauties in the eye of the beholder, both sides in this affirmative action case involving the, the Harvard and UNC approaches, they both relied on Brown versus Board of Education. So, you know, the first question is, is it okay to discriminate based on race? And the progressive position is, well, sure, the Supreme Court for decades has set a compelling state interest in diversity in schools and on the job. Uh, is exists. And although discrimination based on race is usually illegal, if the government has a compelling interest in discriminating, that's okay. okay. That's the rule that the Supreme Court follows. Conservatives, on the other hand, including Chief Justice Roberts, tend to say, no, discrimination is bad, period. There is no compelling state interest here. So it, it is kind of ironic that, that this uh, Brown versus Board of Education case is relied on by both sides. Harvard said, well, look at Brown. It said no racial discrimination in schooling. What they were really trying to do was abolish a racial caste system to integrate schools. And diversity is a form of integration. Conservatives, on the other hand, say, hey, listen to this quote from the Brown versus Board of Education opinion. Education must be made available to all on equal terms. It's kind of interesting that a, a Yale law professor predicted just a week before the Halloween oral argument on the affirmative action case, he predicted that the Supreme Court would save affirmative action, which I think is whistling in the graveyard. If this Supreme Court is going to get rid of the right to abortion when that right was popular, public opinion polls all say that a majority of Americans uh, agree with the pro-choice choice position. Uh, do you really think that this court is going to hesitate to dump an unpopular plan, affirmative action, that they clearly hate? Uh, so, I mean, this, this author, the Yale law professor, 
the guy, I, I don't know what his problem is. He's, he's saying, well, just look at uh, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor's uh, opinion from 2003. Race-conscious admissions policies must be limited in time. There's no reason to believe that this current Supreme Court is going to look at that and say, oh, well, you know, our, our hands are tied. We can't really do anything about that. Uh, he, he pointed out in his column also that justices have repeatedly treated this 25-year sunset as legally significant. Yeah, well, not with the justices that are on the court right now. Uh, he pointed out Justice Kavanaugh has demonstrated a deep commitment to racial diversity in law clerk hiring. Really? And that means he's going to support affirmative action? Give me a break. And finally, he talks about how Justice Barrett, uh, uh, her family adopted two black children. Uh, man, is this guy grasping at straws? Clarence Thomas is black, and he is absolutely against affirmative action. So in addition, he points out Chief Justice Roberts has a healthy, strong respect for stare decisis, the, the power of precedent. He says that's not hollow rhetoric. Yeah, but the fact is conservatives don't need Chief Justice Roberts. Even if he bails on his past position about racial discrimination, they still got five votes without him. Um, and, you know, he's famous for his the, the way to stop racial discrimination uh, is to stop racial discrimination. So the conservatives on the court, including Roberts, have argued that the Constitution and civil rights laws that ban racial discrimination mean admissions policies should be colorblind and race neutral. And I think that's the theme that seems to have come through in the oral argument. So it's going to be a real surprise if the court does not strike down the affirmative action approach taken by Harvard and UNC. Uh, Jason Riley is a uh, is a black columnist who writes for the Wall Street Journal, uh, libertarian. Um, he his take is he objects to mismatching uh, that is inherently a problem with affirmative action. He says black students were admitted to schools with academic credentials below those of the average student in attendance. Thus, he concluded these black students struggled academically, dropped out at a higher rate, or were more likely to switch to an easier major than they originally intended to study. I mean, I, I think of my own personal experience in high school. Trigonometry, uh, chemistry, oh man, I did, <laughs> talk about struggling. So let's say I want to go to Harvard and major in chemistry. If I get in, it's going to make the next four years really unpleasant. Uh, statistics tell us that grades and SAT scores are hugely accurate predictors of college performance and graduation. I'm not going to graduate. There's no way that I can compete. And so the position of Clarence Thomas and this columnist Jason Riley is why are we putting students through this? Instead, wouldn't it have made sense to help people from kindergarten on be able to do well when they get to high school and college and face trigonometry and chemistry and really challenging, challenging subjects? Uh, it, it seems like this diversity green light by the courts has been abused. It's been clear for a long time that elite universities are abusing their discretion and violating the parameters set forth by the court. And that's one of the reasons, I think, uh, that this Supreme Court is, is very likely to strike down uh, affirmative action. When we come back, is it time for a third party? Not for the rightists or the leftists, but for the centrists. Stick with us. We'll be right back on Too Many Lawyers. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, 
and Judy Woodruff come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. Connor will be back shortly. He is on vacation. So, is it time for a third party? Um, you know, the idea is not real popular uh, among a lot of Americans. Uh, for example, the left looks back and, and thinks, oh, that was interesting uh, in 2000 when uh, George W. Bush uh, beat Al Gore. Um, the reason he won is because Ralph Nader. Uh, took a lot of votes away from Al Gore in Florida and other states, but Florida is the, the state that really mattered. Um, you know, Ross Perot uh, in the 90s, no, nothing happened there. And yet people keep thinking about it and talking about it. Matter of fact, there was a, a poll by the Brookings Institution recently asking people, what would you want in a third party? And uh, so uh, if you're talking about, for example, uh, a party that is to the left of the Democrat Party, only 10% of the population wanted that. If you're thinking about a, a third party that's right of the Republicans, only 10% are interested in that. Uh, 30% of the electorate just isn't interested at all in the third party. But here's the interesting stat. If you're thinking about a third party that's basically a centrist party, 42% of Americans would like to see that. So in the past, uh, a solid majority of Americans in public opinion polls have favored a third par party option. But in the past, the centrist option was much less popular. And that suggests that our hyper-polarization we've seen in politics in recent years has boosted interest in a centrist approach. So what do centrists believe? Well, some things that don't sync up with the GOP. Centrists, according to these uh, polls uh, by the Brookings Institution, uh, centrists reject the idea that uh, the election was stolen from Donald Trump. It rejects, uh, they reject the idea that whites and Christians and males are discriminated against. And they reject the idea that immigrants threaten us. But there are, are some positions that uh, centrists have that reject traditional Democrat ideas. Uh, the centrists reject the idea that generations of discrimination have made it hard for blacks to work their way out of poverty. Uh, the centrists believe there are just two genders. Uh, centrists believe that climate change and income inequality are just not big issues. These moderates don't want, by the way, another Trump-Biden matchup. Only 29% of the moderates want Trump to be the GOP nominee. Even fewer, 23%, want Biden to be renominated for the Democrats. So if that happens, uh, Biden and Trump once again, uh, centrists would be even more open to a third party. I think the, the key is that the third party nominee would have to have national stature and credibility. Uh, the problem is the third party could kill the Democrats' chances because polls show Democrats are more likely to bolt to a centrist party than the GOP. 50% of Democrats call themselves moderate or conservative. Only 25% of Republicans call themselves moderate or liberal. So that could be a real problem for Democrats if, uh, if it turns out that uh, the, a third party becomes strong. So what are the chances there's going to be a third party movement? Well, 
you know, the recent efforts haven't gone well. Andrew Yang and the former New Jersey Governor Christine Whitman uh, tried to found the Forward Party for more moderate candidates. And that really hasn't gone anywhere. But there's hope. The, the Pew Institute poll recently uh, said that the unfavorable view of both parties has gone from 6% back in 1994 to 27% now. So in the space of a few decades, the percentage of Americans who have an unfavorable uh, view of both parties has quadrupled plus. So maybe there's an option. You know, if, if you look at parliamentary systems like England's, if we had a parliamentary system, we probably had have five blocks, five parties. Uh, on the left, you'd have the progressive, the Bernie Sanders type, the, the AOCs, the, the uh, Elizabeth Warrens. Uh, then moving toward the center, you've got a center-left type party, which perhaps is, uh, Joe Biden represents. Then there's a centrist party, sort of a business-oriented, uh, moderate uh, party. Then uh, you've got a traditional conservative party, say a, a Mike Pence type party. And finally, you've got a conservative populist party represented by Donald Trump. Sometimes uh, countries even have a sixth party, a Green Party. Germany has a very healthy Green Party. So these are, are some of the options. And a lot of people don't like the idea because they think that if you have multiple parties like that instead of two, you, uh, you're going to have... Uh, instability uh, and uh, the stability of just having two major parties has served us very well basically since uh, Lincoln's time when uh, he became the first Republican in 1860. When we come back, Tom Brady's divorce. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Details. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. Connor will be back next time. So Tom Brady uh, did not contest the divorce, I guess. Just proves uh, money uh, can't buy happiness since he's worth $300 million. And his supermodel wife, Giselle, is worth $400 million. So why didn't he contest the divorce? Uh, she filed uh, in Florida a couple of weeks ago. Um, People don't contest it if they agree it's the right thing to do. He's not trying to keep the marriage together. He's not trying to say, oh, you've got to prove, you know, uh, adultery or uh, incompatibility or whatever. Um, and that's just not the case. We should stay together. He's not trying to do that. So they did have a pre-filing settlement that they reached. Uh, is that common? And it actually is, especially as in this kind of situation, they hired a mediator. They agreed on basic ideas such as custody and distribution of properties. Uh, it's been reported that they've reached an agreement on joint uh, custody. Um, early settlement terms usually result where the two parties are getting along okay, all things considered, and they want to come up with a deal without the combat environment of, of you know, duking it out uh, with their lawyers acting as their surrogates in, in, uh, in court. Contrast the Tom Brady divorce, for example, 
to the high-profile divorce some years ago by the guy who owned the Dodgers at the time, Frank McCourt. He was a parking lot billionaire from Boston who came out and bought the Dodgers. So he and his wife, Jamie, couldn't get along. Money can't buy happiness. And so they divorced, and they ended up spending $25 million just on attorney's fees so that they could engage in a very high-profile, very ugly fight. They could have gone private. They could have hired a mediator, a retired judge who would actually uh, preside over a private trial and keep prying eyes away. Nobody would know about their finances. But no, they couldn't bring themselves to do that. So early settlement terms usually result when people are basically getting along in terms of the structure of the deal. It's kind of dangerous in a way to do an early deal if you don't have a lot of good solid advice because you may be giving up stuff your attorney could have gotten for you. Maybe a reason this was doable in the case of Giselle and Tom Brady is they're both enormously wealthy. As I said, $400 million for her, $300 million for him. Hey, maybe she'll be paying spousal support to him. So we don't know the exact terms of, of the divorce. It's been reported that they do have a prenuptial uh, agreement. And you know the problem with the prenup is that it may say who gets what on dissolution and into the future, but what if lots of property was acquired during the marriage that could be the basis for an argument that we're going to alter the prenup terms uh, here, during the marriage, they bought a $4 million apartment in New York City and a Costa Rica home and a $17 million mansion in Miami. Florida, interestingly, uh, where they're filing and where they live, is not a community property state like California is. In a community property state, what the law says is, okay, whatever you had before the marriage began, that's yours. The spouse has no interest in that. Whatever you get after date of separation is yours the, the spouse doesn't get that. But as to every penny earned by either spouse during the time of the marriage before separation, it's split 50-50. Well, that's not the deal in Florida. It's not a community property state. It's what's called an equitable distribution state, meaning let the court system figure out the fairest distribution. A community property uh, is kind of cookie cutter and, uh, and, and not room for a lot of discretion. But in an equitable distribution state, they look at things like earning potential and the length of the marriage and the kids and career sacrifices and so on. So that's the, uh, that's the outcome for the, uh, uh, for the Tom Brady divorce. And for those of you who are eternal optimists, we'll just look at it this way. Tom changed his mind about playing another year for the Buccaneers. Maybe he and Giselle will change their mind about splitting up. But... Probably not, since apparently his insistence on playing another year uh, was the straw that broke the camel's back uh, for Giselle. All right, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Too Many Lawyers. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. 
Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details.